this grassroots sort of movement took off like wildfire. And the suicide of one of my best friend's husbands really gave us the conviction to form an organization that could really stand up and, and take the fight to veteran suicide, you know, ending veteran suicide, whatever that looks like. Uh, we believe that psychedelic therapies will go a long way in doing that. Hey, this is Chad Namiro. And I'm Kelly Namiro. Welcome to the Balancing Chaos Podcast. A lifestyle podcast where we will interview guests about wellness, business, and just about everything in between. Our goal is to help you develop a lifestyle that promotes health, wholeness, and success. Through our conversations, we hope to inspire you to live a beautiful, full, and joyful life as you navigate balancing the chaos. We hope you enjoy. All right, everyone. Welcome to the show. Today, we have my good friend, Marcus Capone, and his lovely wife, Amber, on the show. Uh, Marcus is a business executive and a former Navy SEAL with over 13 years of combat experience, seven deployments, and five decorations for various actions in combat, including two bronze stars with valor, two joint commendations with valor, and one Navy commendations with valor. He began his military career in BUDS, which is the training name for the Navy SEALs, uh, Class 236. Is that right? Yes. In Coronado, it was commissioned to SEAL Team 10 in Virginia Beach, where he is part of the task unit that the Lone Survivor book and the movie was written about. After two combat deployments at SEAL Team 10, Marcus was selected for the SEAL Team's Tier 1 unit, SEAL Team 6, which I think everyone knows about after the Osama raid. Uh, and the community most highly regarded SEAL team. Uh, Post-military, he graduated with his MBA from USC. This is actually where Marcus and I met. We were in uh, the same study group. Uh, and uh, now he's the chairman and co-founder. The other co-founder being his wife, Amber, who is also with us today of VETS, which stands for Veterans Exploring Treatment Solutions, providing resources, research, and advocacy for special operations veterans seeking alternative mental health treatments. And uh, look, I'll just say this. I've known you, Marcus, for over four years, and um, it's an honor and a privilege to call you my friend. Uh, there, there are a few humans that are more generous and kind, in, in my opinion. So, you know, that plus not to mention the unbelievably beautiful work you're doing for, for veterans and, and others with post-traumatic uh, brain injuries. So uh, we know a lot of the same people. We had Daniel Carcillo on our podcast, who obviously shares the same vision as you and your wife. And so it's just good to have you on, man. I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad things are going well. So good to see you. And yeah, uh, thanks for thanks for having us. Al. that was a, a great introduction. Um, we'll just let everybody know who's listening that that thank God uh, you. I was in your MBA class because you, you pulled <laughs> me through most of it, um, but uh, somebody had to do it. So yeah, has it been almost four years now? That's even more nuts. I guess, like you said, uh, time's going by pretty quickly. Time's gone by very fast. Yeah. We definitely need to see each other IRL in the near future. Yeah. Well, you guys need to come down to our gala November 11th, Veterans Day. Um, Amber will tell you, but we've already, we already sold out twice. So 400 to 500. Wow. We're closing in on 600. Um, it's at the Hotel Dell. You know, we, it's, it's a beautiful place. Um, we have it there because we know it's difficult for people to fly in to places but if we have it at a resort spot we know you know uh, people will make a bring their families or, or make a vacation out of it so it'll be a, a very interesting crowd um a lot of fun we have an after party we have tons of music a lot of individuals from kind of this psychedelic 
uh, Renaissance, um, a lot of the key uh, individuals that are, are doing a lot of, uh, you know, behind the scenes work. And so it'll be, uh, it'll be really cool. Um, I don't know, Amber, if you want to say anything about it or you're, you've been grinding and putting it all together for the last six months. So all I'll say about it is that, holy moly, it is a lot of work to plan a gala. <laughs> it all it's culminates. Hard. It's really hard. Um, it all culminates in this night that goes so fast. You don't even you know, like barely remember it. But um, yeah, it's a very, very special event. And it's an honor to host it. We would love for you guys to come. It'll definitely be worth it. It's going to be a uh, you know, good, good event, good meaning. There'll be a lot of people there that um you know that that we have funded through you know through our charity and um it's just getting everybody there together to kind of just share stories and learn you know as part of its education again just individuals that are very interested in you know in mental health and really um now in which we believe maybe the future of mental health which is psychedelic medicine which i'm sure we'll talk a little bit about here so it's kind of bringing everybody together and the theme is common ground so you know, I think our country, and this is this is from Amber. You know, we're so divided, uh, red and blue. Uh, so the 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 color is purple, and Amber's going to be in a purple gown. And you know, if we can actually agree upon something in the government, where both right and left parties could could look each other in the eye and say, "Yeah, I agree on on healing individuals that are struggling." You know, maybe we've made some progress because right now we are divided as a nation. So maybe this is something that they can work on together to to agree on something. Before we kind of jump into your guys, both of your guys' backgrounds, just for our listeners and the sake of them, can you tell us a little bit about what the charity does and and how it's helpful for veterans? In 2017, after Marcus's uh, successful treatment with psychedelics, he was immediately compelled. uh, We both were to help our friends. Our community is very much inclined to help one another. And um, that's what we started doing right off the bat this grassroots sort of movement took off like wildfire and the suicide of one of my best friend's husbands really pushed us out of our comfort zone because we knew that sort of like below ground there were former teammates the Marcuses that were leaving the country every single week we just weren't talking about it because it was very stigmatized and we weren't comfortable even saying that we had been struggling and the death of um Chad Wilkinson gave us the conviction to form an organization that could really stand up and, and take the fight to veteran suicide, you know, ending veteran suicide, whatever that looks like. Uh, we believe that psychedelic therapies will go a long way in doing that. And so we just, um, we began raising funds and supporting other veterans definitely started out as our friends became their friends their friends friends it just was growing growing you know now fast forward five years and we've provided funding for almost 700 other special operators to leave the united states um for access to psychedelic therapies we're not providing the treatments Uh, we've written checks to a number of retreat centers that have been vetted and we know are operating safely um we also provide the supplemental support in the form of one-on-one coaching group integration meditation training all of the tools to sustain the psychedelic experience on the back end so that's that's it that's amazing. I actually have um, two clients who 
um, both them and, you know, their husbands are um, military or ex-military. And um, I think that there's all like often uh, a mental health component that comes along with that. And it's really hard being separated from your spouse. So what you guys are doing is, is really incredible work. Thank you. So we will get into vets on a lot deeper level, but uh, before that, I, I just wanted to hear more about both of you. I, I know a good amount about Marcus. I know uh, only what he's told me about you, Amber. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I just want to hear about your upbringing and, and kind of where you grew up and what home life was like, if you're comfortable uh, talking about that and, and kind of what, what values your parents instilled, et cetera. Absolutely. Um, I grew up in the Midwest and I was raised on a retired dairy farm. So I come from a very long line of hard workers and um, really good people. I love my Midwestern values and, you know, faith and family and really um, doing whatever it takes to accomplish a task and doing the right thing, even if no one's looking. So I was raised by uh, my mom, mostly my parents were divorced and, um, my dad was a football coach. And so, you know, the times that I did get to spend with my dad, we were very close. And, um, you know, he taught me a few really key things, which is, you know, don't ever quit, always do what's right and listen to your heart. And those three things have really stuck with me into adulthood. And so when, you know, Marcus was struggling and our family was truly on the brink, I really leaned into that and, and my faith which was also a huge part of my life. Um, and that's what sustained me. I think that, you know, having a, a dad as a football coach, um, mm. you know, it, it comes with, you know, he's, he's a, a hard guy, um, but he's really soft on the inside. And so um, he was actually Marcus's football coach and how we met and, um, <laughs> fast forward all these years, uh, what was very controversial in 1997, when I met Marcus, you know, to be dating my dad's quarterback, uh, he sees now, you know, what a connection we have and, and how this relationship is now spilled over into the lives of others. And I think back then he probably would have said, don't date him. You know, he's not good for you or whatever, but he sees now that maybe even coach Watson's wrong in time or two. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I, I listened to the Jocko podcast that you both were on, which was phenomenal for, for listeners, but, uh, yeah, dating the, uh, football coach's daughter, man, that, uh, it's probably a no, no. <laughs> yeah, I knew better. I knew better to start dating Amber when he was, when he was still there. Um, I actually didn't meet Amber until he left and he, he left in, I think it was 2000 excuse me, 97. And he took the O coordinator job, uh, at least a quarterback job at Northwestern with Gary Barnett. Um, him and Gary evidently were like best friends. And so he, he went there and, and that summer I met Amber. And so it was much better to have him out of town while we were dating, even though he got a phone call rather quickly. And then she got a phone call <laughs> and then I got a phone call. Um, and, and the rest is history. <laughs> That's great. Um, yeah. so do we, do either of you guys have like military backgrounds in your family? Like, um, uh, you know, yeah, so, yeah, sort of. I mean, I grew up with, uh, my grandfather, you know, like 
hardcore Italian American, yeah. you know, grew up in Queens, uh, own a bunch of taxi cabs, um, you know, drank two quarts of beer before, uh, <laughs> like noon, he died of cirrhosis of the liver. Um, I mean, he, he fought in World War II. I believe he fought the Italians in Northern Africa and he got wounded. Um, and so I saw growing up this purple heart that was constantly just somewhere, but my dad always had it in something nice. Um, but I never really knew what it meant at all. He just told me that, you know, his, his father had, uh, you know, you never, it's one of those, those medals that you really don't want because you have to be injured to, to earn it. Um, but it was, it, it always hung around the house, but you know, I never grew up, like I didn't grow up in a family that was quote unquote patriotic. I mean, I mean, honestly, like both my parents were technically hippies. They, they went to Woodstock. Uh, they didn't know each other. My mom, you know, used to put on a headband and protest the Vietnam war in downtown Manhattan. And, um, so I think, you know, me going off to the Midwest to play football, I had some more influence from, you know, friends that I met there because I didn't really have the influence in uh, growing up on Long Island. And, you know, Amber has a different story. She, you know, her, her family, and I'll, I'll let you tell your, about your uncles. And Yeah. I have a, um, a letter that I wrote when I was nine years old framed uh, by our fireplace. It was to veterans on veterans day. And, you know, reading that as an adult, I'm like, yes, I am that person still, you know, my spirit has always been very aligned, um, and, and empathy and just honoring and understanding, even though I didn't really understand my family did have, um, my great grandmother's brothers were all in world war II. There were five of them. One was a POW, two were killed and two survived. And um, it was just always instilled in me that we honor our military. We love America. I didn't have anyone close to me that was living that had served, but um, I certainly was raised with the respect for the military. Now, I didn't necessarily want to be married to anyone in the military. <laughs> so when Marcus told me uh, uh, in his senior year of college, my sophomore year, I guess, uh, he told me he wanted to be in the Navy. I thought it was nuts of course it was pre 9 11 um i didn't know what a navy seal was i had no idea what the next you know the the following years of my life would be like because we had actually decided to break up i was just like whoa this is not for me go ahead do your thing so i i learned real quick what the military was all about marcus what made you want to join the military G.I. Jane. Yeah, that's a true story. Um, but, you know, the funny thing is, I don't think anybody knew that story probably for the first 10 years I was in the military because, God forbid, I would ever let any of my buddies know that the reason I joined um, <laughs> the SEAL teams was from a movie I watched late night with my roommate, who's the starting strong safety um, and became an F-18, Marine F-18 pilot. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, I don't think that would go yeah, over yeah. well. I want to be Demi Moore. I would be Demi Moore. I shave my head, grow boobs, and yeah. Um, no, uh, yeah, it was just weird. It was one of those things where I was, um, you know, young, right? We're, we're just you're senior. You think you're old, but we're actually—I mean, we're super young at that at that time. And 
I grew up really doing nothing except playing ball guys. Like it was for me, you know, my dad definitely emphasized, um, education and he was actually a very bright individual, but you know, I, not that I, I didn't have, um, you know, I didn't have great grades, but I always, always got by, you know, I always had a 3.0 and, and, but I really just, I played ball. I played football. I played basketball. I played baseball. I wrestled. Um, I was a lifeguard. I rode, uh, I skied. Um, that's what I loved doing. So the thought of leaving college at 22 and putting on a shirt and tie and stepping off in the private sector scared the crap out of me really did because I didn't really know like what do you do next right this is what I knew um I did an internship at the Breakers Resort in Palm Beach Florida which was actually really cool my senior year um but I learned kind of how to run a resort and kind of the operations and the programs and that seemed pretty cool and it's probably where I would have ended up they offered me a full-time role um, during my internship and I knew I was already going, uh, into the military. And so, you know, I politely uh, turned it down, but yeah, I just, you know, I come home one night and Jason's sitting on the couch. This is at Southern Illinois and on comes GI Jane. And I'm like, wow, this movie looks cool. And when you don't know, you just don't know. And, and I didn't know anything about the military at that time. And we're watching this movie and they're talking about, oh, this is like the toughest unit in the world and the best of the best and Navy SEALs and all this crazy stuff. And most of it was like 98% of it was, was completely wrong, but <laughs> it was really intriguing and fun to watch. And I was like, I want to do something tough. You know, like if that's real, like I want to do that. And, you know, people are getting yelled at and, you know, it was just a part of life. I've never experienced. I didn't grow up I never shot a weapon ever in my life, never held a weapon, except maybe like a pellet guy. Yeah. Um, didn't really do, I didn't hunt, didn't fish. Um, so this was like, this was really cool at the time. And so like anything else, I started, uh, there wasn't a whole lot online in 90, well, I guess 99 now. And at least about the SEAL teams are out, you know, military history. So I read every book that I could find. I literally read every book and most of the books were from Vietnam. And the more I read about the SEAL teams, the more I got intrigued and more focused. And, you know, I said, yeah, like, this is it. This is exactly what I want to do. And called my parents and the parents thought I was crazy. And I told Amber and Amber thought I was crazy. And pretty much everybody on campus at SIU told me that like nobody gets through training. And so that was even more fuel to, to, uh, to throw on the fire. And you guys broke up, right? Or no? Um, we did. We did. Well, we were sort of like amicably. My memory doesn't remember any of that. So I'll let Amber talk about it. Well, it's because you can't imagine your life without me for even a day. Right. right. It's true. <laughs> you are my unicorn. Uh, um, so, yeah, what actually happened was he was so excited about this. I remember we were watching something on maybe the Discovery Channel. It was some sort of a documentary. Maybe G.I. Jean piqued his interest, but then he really dove in head first with books and other things on TV and whatnot. And I remember he was watching um, the pool comp uh, phase of Bud's training where they tie your hands and feet together. And he was like, oh, I could totally do that. Like, that's what really invigorated him. And that was what they were saying on TV. It was like the most dreaded part. And I just remember thinking like, 
he is crazy. This is crazy. Whatever. He needs to do his own thing and it doesn't involve me. And I was completely fine with that um, because we'd been together since I was a senior in high school at that point. So like, you know, two plus years. And um, I don't know, there's part of me that thought I need to be young and enjoy college and not be in this long term relationship. And I was okay with it. It was weird. I was totally okay with it. And we were living together, but, you know, very much under like the same idea that at the end of the semester, he would do his internship and then he would enlist in the Navy and I would just go on about my life. I was an only, I was raised an only child. I have two half brothers, but I was raised an only child. And Marcus was also an only child. So I think that we both also needed our independence and, um, this just seemed like the next logical step. So as we're living together and planning for this breakup, I noticed that I wasn't quite feeling myself. I had an aunt who was dying of breast cancer. It was very traumatic. And I kept delaying and delaying and delaying the inevitable. When I finally took the pregnancy test, I was somewhere between 10 and 12 weeks pregnant. Oh my gosh. And it was at the time, you know, it seemed devastating. I know now it's the catalyst that kept us together. And it's our son has been such a blessing. Um, but at that time, it was very scary and um, very uncertain. Yeah. What were your parents thinking through all this? Because I, I don't have a daughter, I only have two sons, but you know, joining the military is an amazing thing. And it's one of the most selfless things you can do for your country, et cetera. But, you know, as, as a dad, I don't, I don't know if I necessarily want to have my sons join. Cause that's, I'm selfish, right? Like, I don't want them to be injured. I don't want them to be hurt. And as a hopefully future dad of a daughter, I'm not sure I'd want her dating someone that's about to go off to the military, right. As they're having a kid. So I, I can only imagine what was going on, you know, behind you too. During that. I think my dad was probably thinking I want to kill him <laughs> because my daughter. <laughs> yeah, well, you're pretty. I don't young, think he was thinking right? about the military. Oh yeah, I was twenty. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's yeah. Crazy. Yeah. That's with, like we said, with not a lot of support when when once we moved um, once we moved to Virginia Beach, there was really like I mentioned earlier. You know, my parents lived in New York, so it would take uh, about an eight hour drive to Virginia Beach and. Amber's family was in the Midwest and they didn't like to get on airplanes. And so, you know, it was Amber at, you know, 21 raising Caden. And then at 22, we had Maggie. So now she's got two small children. Well, we have two small children, but I'm mm -hmm. gone 300 days a year. Yeah. Um, not conducive to family life. I can, I feel like we could do a whole podcast episode just on that topic alone. We should. Like I, that is just. I just, I was talking to Marcus about it before we got on here and I was like, we have two kids now. I just, I don't understand how single moms do it. Like it is beyond heroic. I just literally don't understand how that's even possible because, you know, we're very fortunate. We have, we have help. Her parents yeah. are here. And even in that case, it's yeah. really, really challenging. So hats off to you, Amber, because <laughs> that's incredible. Thank you. Seriously. I think whenever you don't have a choice, you yeah. just figure it out, you know? 
did you feel like um you kind of pushed yourself when you moved to Virginia Beach to make friends and to do because I was telling Marcus I actually know somebody who is a friend of a friend who lives out there now her husband's on team six and she's finding it really hard to make friends um and so I feel like the wife has to go through you know a lot too um and I mean it's it's different but it's still like mental health right um and so I'm curious as to like how you manage that it is really hard um because it's hard for so many reasons, (laughs) but I will say that, yes, I did uh, make a concerted effort to make friends. I realized very early on that there were women in our community that were living through their husbands. There were women that were very, um, solid and secure. There were women that wanted nothing to do with the community at all. There were, um, also women that were very angry and bitter. And I realized very quickly who I didn't want to be and who I did want to be. And I wanted to keep like one foot in and be involved enough without making it my entire life. And I think I did a decent job of that. That's not to say that I didn't spend sleepless nights, just too afraid to go to sleep, um, being alone in a home or um, that I, I didn't have panic attacks. I would I really, really suffered through a lot of things to, to make myself sort of embrace this lifestyle that was thrust up on me. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it, it, it was not easy. Yeah. I can only imagine. So you're going from maybe breaking up to pregnant and then Marcus, you're effectively going into buds, right? From that point. I, that's it. I mean, everything happened very quickly. Um, before I graduated, Amber found out she was pregnant. We decided we we're going to work this out. Um, I graduated. We got married. I think I was in the Navy six weeks later. Wow. Um, it was, it happened pretty quickly. And, you know, I was off to boot camp and I think I saw an Amber, Caden, my family, her family, uh, during graduation. And then, um, yeah, it was just, it it was that way for about a year. So she stayed at home during like training and kind of all the initial stuff. And then once I got through hell week, um, then she moved out and it was, you know, at least we knew at that point, there was a very good chance I'd get through training. So before you never know, I was Um, actually there Marcus before I was there when you classed up. And I went home for Hell Week, but um, not, not that that really matters, but I do think that my nativity at that point was like superb. I was like, oh, it's just getting through SEAL training. It's just the six months. Like in my mind, it was just six months. Yeah. And uh, man, was I wrong. <laughs> so can you explain to us a little bit what the deployment was like what the deployment process was like like how often was he gone um and for for how long um until you guys decided or until you decided that you were not i don't know what your decision was for why you weren't going to do it anymore so yeah um so marcus can touch on buds and the training and the fact that like right before he graduated in october of 2001 the towers came down so 
in my mind, I had been just getting through this six months. I'd never lived away from my little bitty hometown in Southern Illinois. And I was living in um, Coronado while he was in SEAL training. And the six months was like abruptly ended when the towers came down. And there was this realization of like, oh, shit, this is just beginning. Yeah. And um, from that point forward, he was, you know, after SEAL training was over and he arrived at his first SEAL team and started working up with his first platoon, he's gone all the time. Um, it escalated, of course, as the war became more and more intense. And he was gone for, you know, between training and wartime deployments, he was gone for like roughly 300 days a year. So we would see him in very small snippets of, you know, a weekend here or five days there. Um, but he never really got out of the mindset of training and deploying. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's difficult when you're, you're doing two, four and six week training blocks and you come home for a week um, and then you go bite right back and you do it again. Uh, very difficult to, I guess, turn that off. Um, because you're constantly just like, go, 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 um, you know, up, up and down, up, up all different hours and try to come home, make a semblance of family life. But even when you're home, you're still, um, you know, you, you have to go to work. And so you're in at work and you're asking, you know, I'm asking Amber, like, Hey, where are the, where's the forks? Where are this, where are the cups? Um, like I literally didn't know where stuff was in the house always wondered why the kids would go right past me. Like I wasn't there and ask Amber for like a drink or something. So you just dealt with that. And that was really tough because you're like, wait a minute, I'm dad. Why, why aren't they asking me anything? Um, because you're just like, who's this person in the house that, you know, we see every once in a while, especially as kids growing up. <clears throat> yeah. That, that can't be easy going from effectively being deployed during wartime to coming home and, going grocery shopping like what an unbelievable juxtaposition that must be in the mind yeah, i don't want to do any of that yeah, yeah. i mean you're, and you love being overseas right you love being deployed yeah. i don't know if that's the right word but you no know. it is yeah no chad it, um it, it's funny though you, you you can't wait to deploy you love being on deployment and then there comes a point where you're kind of you're you're just like you're really homesick and you want to see like your loved ones and then you're like you want to just come home and hug your wife and kids. Um, you know, it was just like a weird cycle of doing that. And then you couldn't wait to go back on deployment because, you know, there's a war going on, you have friends over there and there's a lot happening and you joined to play in the big game, right. Not to like train and sit on the sidelines. And so mm -hmm. you're waiting again to go and deploy and just that cycle just repeated itself. Yeah. So when did that, I don't want to say love for the military. When did you start looking elsewhere in terms of, you know, what you wanted to do next or, or when did you start? Um, Just want to transition out. Yeah. Or, or even maybe this is when some of the struggles began mentally, just wondering like when uh, the mindset changed around, you know, wanted to be overseas uh, during that period. Yeah. I mean, I think I was at like my peak of, of just everything, you know, 2006, 2007, 2008, everything was just like exactly how it was supposed to be. But we started, you know, we started really losing a lot of friends and, yeah. and very close friends. And, 
you know, all these peaks started to become valleys. And um, I don't know, it came a point in maybe 2009 where we just slowly started getting a little bit burnt out um, mentally, like just stuff was just not right. And, you know, you can talk to Amber, like every time you come home, it's like this shift happens from the individual. So, you know, I did seven tours. I mean, I have friends that have done over 20, com- literally 20 combat deployments. <clears throat> you know, you're, every time you come home, you lose, you like, you lose a little bit of yourself over there. Right. Or, or wherever, um, whatever that means for some people, some maybe come back and, and are, are okay. And, you know, I envy those individuals. I look up to them. That definitely wasn't me. Um, but it, it just got harder, uh, later, you know, closer to 2010, and it was in, I was in a weird transition point. Um, I was supposed to go to officer candidate school. Uh, the commanding officer at the time just basically told me I was going. Um, it, was, it wasn't like one of those things like, oh, I should look into this and I'm interested. Uh, but uh, we were close and he said, yeah, you, you need to go to CS and become an officer because you'd be a good O. And I said, sure. Not really thinking about it. <clears throat> I got on a plane uh, after like my seventh, tour i came back i i don't even know how long i was home amber for a week maybe or something two two like five days okay so five (laughs) days and i showed up i didn't want to get on the plane i showed up i was angry as hell um i lasted about a day and a half just being pissed off i had excruciating headaches um my back was killing me i couldn't even sit so like it was basically like going back to boot camp again for officers. Um, not the way that combat veterans, in my opinion, um, should should uh, have to go through to 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 become an officer. That's a whole separate conversation because evidently there's a loophole that I found about that I found out about years later. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I didn't want to be there. I, didn't, I shouldn't even have gone. And uh, I got home. And I just said, hey, I, I just need a break. Like, I want to see the kids. They were hysterical crying the last two deployments when I left. Literally, both of them were like broken, uh, completely hysterical. Amber was completely hysterical. And I was just like, I can't like this is like not this is not good. Um, and it, it started, you know, fucking with my head. Um and so we just decided to take a break uh, operationally. And so I went out to California to become an instructor. I was a first phase instructor for a year. Um, it was okay. I didn't love it. Again, I was just not in a good place. I was angry. I, d- I didn't want to make friends. Um, and, um, you know, I went to work and I went home and, uh, you know, numbed with, uh, you know, bourbon and kind of that was like the cycle every night. And then um, after a year, first phase, I went. And I took over um, advanced training, uh, close quarters combat, uh, which we did a lot of uh, on the East Coast. And so, or where I was at. And so um, that was better because I, I was able, in my opinion, to use what we learned. And so I was able to, you know, teach tactics. Um, but I had a great staff. And again, I was sort of checked out at that time. And so the staff really ran everything. I just kind of did my best to hold the hold the ship together. And um you know, at the, and at this time, like I started, started struggling a little bit. I'd already been to uh, the command psychologist several times. I've already been prescribed um, my first uh, antidepressant. Um, and then I was prescribed several other medications. 
I'd been to my first brain clinic at that time. Um, so like things just started not, you know, I, I was just, wasn't all there and, um, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And, and, uh, I went to retire. I, I just really just wanted to, to, to get out. I just wanted to run as fast as I could in any direction. And, um, the, uh, the, the command psychologist was like, no, I can't let you go. Like you have way too much crap going on. Like you're not good. And your medical record is like 10 pounds. And like, you're like, you're a candidate to be medically retired. Like you're just, you know, I'm like, okay, well, what does that mean? And you wind up staying, I wind up staying like an extra eight months. And that was kind of excruciating because again, I just want to move on with my life, which I didn't even really know what that meant. Um, I wanted to be medically retired in 2013, uh, which worked out. Um, and then I stepped into the private sector. So, and that started a whole nother fun. So I read that, uh, so you're still in the military when you started to maybe not have some of these symptoms, but start to like want to address them. And from my vantage point and from what I've heard you talk about, it seems like they take a pretty Western approach, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's military medicine. It's, it's what, you know, they learned it in med school and, um, you know, um, I don't know, you and I probably learned a lot on paper at our, you know, in business school. But if you talk about some of that stuff, people look at you cross-eyed because like a lot of it is, is theoretical things that I don't know, maybe, maybe you use, but at the end of the day, like on the job is like what, you know, what makes you learn. And, um, so here you had these doctors that were, you know, it felt like it was right out of a book. What do you have? Okay. Here's the same question you get. Here's the same answer. Here's the same medication you get prescribed. Like it was all, um, felt like it was, it was robotic. And I mean, I honestly can't tell you from the first, the first psychologist that I saw, which was on the, on the East coast in 2007, to the time I got out, um, it was just, there was just too many, but it was all the same thing. And they ask you the same questions and you fill out the same paperwork. And, you know, for the most part, if you're dealing with depression, um, and you're dealing with swings of, you know, bouts of, of mania, sometimes, you know, you're, you're getting prescribed the same things, uh, antidepressants or mood stabilizers. And then because of those things, it's causing, you know, it's causing disruptions. You're, you're already not in a good place. Your sleep's disrupted. So I, I wasn't sleeping well. So, you know, I was prescribed medicine again to go to sleep. And for years on deployment, I mean, it took Ambien like it was candy, um, you know, to go to, to go to bed because we were, you know, we were up during, uh, excuse me, we were sleeping during the day and up at night and, you know, kind of screws up your sleep cycle. And so you wind up just taking anything to try to go to sleep so you can get a you know, you can get some time before you get up again. So that stuff's not good. So here you now you're out and here's the doctor prescribing you antidepressants, uh, something to make you go to sleep. Um, because I'm groggy and can't really focus. Now I'm prescribed some medicine to focus. Um, yeah, it was just, it, you know, it becomes a cycle that unfortunately many of not only my friends that I've served with, but, you know, the greater military population are getting kind of prescribed the same things. I mean, the, the VA is probably big pharma's largest customer. I'm, I'm assuming, um, 
Yeah, they have a lucrative partnership. There's no question about that. I think it's a it's a crisis in America. I mean, of course, in the military, but in America too, it's like you're prescribed something for there's a prescription for everything, and so people would rather, you know, and not just saying not saying you like, but I think that there's a lot of choice with the rest of America um, that they would rather take a pill than actually address. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I struggle sometimes saying, well, is that, is that good or bad? Like for some people yeah. it is good. Like for some people, like we can't argue that that helps them. Yeah. And without it, maybe they wouldn't be able to function. But again, we're still going back to, it is not getting to the root cause of potentially okay. what the individual is dealing with. And so, you know, it's hard to argue to say, yeah, these, 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 drugs are bad, but if it enables a person to go to work, to get up, to get their kids out of bed, to take them to school, like, yeah, for sure. we have to like that. We have to do that. But at the same time, um, how do we, how do we change that? How do we, how do we get better? And I think, you know, through the stuff that, you know, Amber and I have been working on, I really think that, you know, I, I really think the medicines that I experience get to root cause and mm-hmm. can really, you know, not just changed me, but it's changed my relationship with Amber. It's, it's changed our relationship with the kids, which is probably going to make them better individuals, better parents, better spouses. So sure. this is like generational stuff that's happening. Um, and I think that's important. I, I kind of went down a rabbit hole there. So sorry. no, I, I think that that's all really great. And I'm, I'm a hundred percent with you on root cause. I think that when we get to that, and even though it can be really challenging for some people to want to go there and unravel, like that's where the real deep healing is. Um, so one question for you is, you know, I I definitely don't think you're alone in what you experienced being ex-military. Do you feel like there are what, if you could, I mean, I don't know if you actually, you might know this given, um, your guys' organization, but what percentage of military, ex-military or ex-military struggle with these types of issues? That's a good question. I don't know, Amber, maybe, maybe you have- I don't a... know the statistics. Yeah, I don't know the statistics. I do know the one horrifying statistic that hasn't changed and recently a bit more light was shed on the statistic for us is just the veteran suicide statistic alone and and you know roughly 20 a day actually take their lives but what i didn't realize is that deaths due to overdose Mm. are not counted as self-harm um really yeah 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 uh those statistics according to an article that i recently read those statistics are not included in the the suicide number so that's horrifying um the other thing is that statistic doesn't account for the number of individuals that might have had a suicide attempt and or the number of individuals that are uh, dealing with suicidal ideation. So if you think about like doubling or tripling or quadrupling that number and like that, that's the number of veterans that are really suffering. Um that's pretty staggering. Yeah, the, the number is closer to 40 on attempted suicides. So, I mean, I mean, that's a, 40 that's a, a large number. Yeah, 40 a day. Wow. So, and again, you know, we, we can, we could back channel those numbers, but, you know, to include 17, 20 on average are, are taking their own lives and then up, upwards of 40 um, are attempting suicide. Um, 
what yeah what's going on you know one I, I don't is, know one is too many for our, our great service it's man. nuts it's it's uh yeah, it's, it's, it's nuts. But, you know, again, you know, COVID epidemic definitely exasperated just mental health issues in general. Um, you know, a lot of people are searching for answers. Uh, people are just not used to being at home all the time. Yeah. Um, you know, people lost jobs. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's just, it seems to be, I mean, it's a big issue. We're talking about right now, 20%. So one in every five Americans are dealing with something that are self, that are reported. So that number's more guaranteed to be higher than that. Hey fam, if you are listening here, then you may be someone who deals with chronic overwhelm, bloating, anxiety, and weight you can't lose, maybe hair loss or skin conditions. If one of those things rings true for you, the Wellness by Kelly Health and Hormones course is available to help you get to the root cause and solve the issue in a way that's sustainable and gives you your lifestyle with lasting results. No more diets or quick fixes, but real health and vitality for the long run. My course runs through everything from what labs to test for to what protocols to implement given what's off in your blood work. We cover a variety of hormonal imbalances and how to heal them, plus the mindset work that you'll have to do to change your habits. If you're ready for an environment where you can learn the tools and truly heal to feel your best, most aligned, light, confident version of you, then this course is for you. If you're feeling called to join the WBK Health and Hormones course, head to the link in the show notes to learn more where you'll get my membership included with your purchase. So you're at the end of your military career, kind of getting into the private sector or just coming home in general. You're on seven or so medications, correct? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Were you doing like your own research at this point or were you like many of us, like I was growing up, I think most Americans just very entrusting of the doctors. And, yeah. you know, if, if they say that I should take this, I should, uh, and go about your life kind of thing. No. Yeah. I mean, I Chad, you and I remember us talking about this in class, you know, just some of the stuff in, in Arizona and no, I trusted my doctors. Like yeah. they're, they're, you know, they're a lot smarter than I am. Right. And, um, I, you know, you, you think that what they put out, um, you know, is, is gospel, but I think what we're, you know, what we're learning, there's a whole other side to medicine called preventative medicine. Yeah. Um, and so, um, you know, how would we take care of ourselves like before we get sick as opposed to, you know, trying to figure out what to take when we get sick. And so I didn't do much research. Amber started doing more research because she was trying to figure out, you know, he's not getting better. He's getting worse. They're going to see, he's going to see, you know, we're going to see all these experts can't seem to solve any problem. And so, you know, we started looking at more kind of holistic, you know, integrative health, if you want to call it. And, um, you know, Amber's really one who started doing a lot of the due diligence on what else can we try? What else can we look into? Hyperbaric oxygen therapy, does that work? Or transcranial magnetic stimulation, does that work? Or, and um, I was becoming increasingly concerned about Marcus's history of traumatic brain injury, like mild traumatic brain injury, repeated blows to the head, concussive and subconcussive events, and the culmination of primarily the subconcussive events that maybe we hadn't thought about previously. And the reason that I started thinking in this direction was because one of Marcus's former teammates who had taken his life, um, his spouse had, uh, she had donated his brain and they found this pattern of scarring in the brain that 
it might be similar to CTE, but it is totally different. It was very much um, in relation to blasts. And so that started this research on my part of like, well, what is blast injury? What are subconcussive blows? What is CTE? And I started to put all these things together that Marcus's history of playing football for 15 years and then as an explosives expert in the military for 13 years, like, holy shit almost three decades of consistent head trauma cannot be good. And a lot of the struggles that I was reading about with former um, NFL players and, and Dave, his friend that, you know, had taken his life. I'm like, this is what I'm living through. It's not to me like a, like a psychological, emotional issue that he can't deal with what happened overseas. Like if anything, Marcus and all of his former teammates, in my opinion, were very, very eager to deploy and very, there was a lot of job satisfaction in what they were doing. What I was seeing was different. It was like, couldn't remember anything. The executive functioning was off. The, um, he, he would be very impulsive, very depressed. He was this, he was that. He was constantly shifting. You couldn't say anything to him. An- anger, isolation. I mean, I'm sure, you know, Carcillo talked a bunch about it because I think, you know, we both felt, you know, dealt with the same things, except, you know, he he really been knocked out, you know, many times. Um, and, and luckily for him, he found, you know, healing through through psychedelic medicine. And so, you know, it's very similar, you know, every everyone from a different sport to a different, line of work but i think we're starting to figure out that you know maybe it's not just completely psychological and quote-unquote trauma which not really sure what that means but uh, maybe it is something deeper was this a turning point for you amber in terms of how you uh, absolutely his illness in terms of something he could control versus something that you know is a disease essentially and a product of his environment Yes, I was very much like in the guilting, shaming, condemning, um, just threatening mode of like, I can't believe you're like this. You know what? You should be ashamed of yourself. Like no one wanted to change more than Marcus did. And so when I saw this as like less of a choice and more of a um, something that was out of his control, I was so overcome with compassion and also like this mega fear that this would only get worse. It wouldn't get better. Um, There was no diagnosis, let alone a treatment or a cure. And so I became like frantic and I reached out to basically everyone from military leadership to charitable organizations to Bennett Amalu himself, who, who, and discovered CTE. I'm like, somebody help me. I don't know what to do for my husband. And I really didn't get any help other than like, yikes, good luck with that. And I was just really determined. I thought maybe brain clinics would work because he had tried the traditional talk therapy pharmaceutical route. And I'm like, well, if this is some sort of a degenerative brain condition, there's no amount of pharmaceuticals or talk therapy that's going to get him out of this. In fact, it could make it worse, especially on the pharmaceutical side. Um, The brain clinics were, I'd say, you know, somewhat effective in terms of diagnostics. Like, you know, they were great at telling you what you were deficient in um, or not proficient at, but not necessarily great at treatments or follow-up. 
um, he came home one day from one of the brain clinics and he's like, yeah, today they found that I have trouble with memory recollection, balance and coordination. And I was like, oh crap. Like, you know, memory and recollection, I see that. But Marcus was like this physical, in my mind, like this physical specimen, he could do anything. He was so capable and like he balanced in coordination. It really threw me for a loop. So I was very frantic. And uh, the last thing, that I did because, you know, my, my sort of like new eyes of compassion, those were my eyes. Our kids were not living that they didn't understand that same compassion. And so while I had a increased patience for Marcus, they were still living in this house, like at the time, you know, with kind of a monster. And so, um, both of the kids had expressed to me that they were really struggling, um, with our home environment. And it became clear to me that I needed to make a choice. I didn't really have time to keep trying these things. At this point, I would say we had invested like, oh gosh, a good year plus into brain clinics. And like he was taking time away from the family, taking time away from work. Um, a lot of, uh, there, there was a lot that went into all these different programs and he was getting more and more frustrated. So the last thing was I... I arranged for him to leave and come to California and do this sort of like trifecta of treatments. And I really thought that that was my last hope. I really wanted to make things work. And I really wanted these treatments to work. Um, we came to visit him a couple of times. The first time it was pretty decent for the majority of the trip. But the last couple of days, it, it went sideways. So at one point, you know, I had all this hope, like, oh, it's working, it's working. And then at the end of the trip, I'm like, well, this is, this is no good. It's not working. I went home. I sat with it. Like, you know, do I leave? I really can't do this anymore. There's so much peace in the house without him in it. And uh, I thought, let me go back one more time and just see um, if it's any different. And the second time I went back, it was worse. And so I didn't even tell him I was leaving the next morning when he was at one of his uh, appointments, I got on a flight and I went back home and uh, I told my dad who had always instilled in me, don't ever quit anything that I had decided to quit. And it wasn't quitting in my mind. It was choosing something else, choosing a, a peaceful life for my kids and telling my dad that was like a huge deal for me. Um, and I, he was very supportive and, uh, you know, I had no idea how bad things had gotten. And, um, I was sitting with that, like, okay, well, I, I've done, you know, one of the hardest things, which is tell my dad, but now I'm stuck with the reality of what's going to happen next. I had told my parents, uh, during that call, he'll, he'll be dead within two to five years this year. I said that five years ago. And so, you know, to see our life now and our life then and what, where we were headed and where we're at now, it's just like such a blessing. Um, but you know, it was, it was a huge burden at that time. It was very heavy to sit with the fact that, you know, it, it I could potentially be, um, 
sort of sealing the deal that my kids would grow up without a father and I would have to live with this knowing that I hadn't tried everything. Maybe there was something else I could have said or done. And then I remembered that one of Marcus's friends had shared with me that he had done this crazy treatment in Mexico. And uh, I reached out to him and said, you know, would it be possible if I can convince him to go, would it be possible to get him down there? And like right away, because he was running out of funding and he needed to come home. And so sort of like this quasi ultimatum I gave him, I said, um, you can come home, but when you get here, I want to sit down and have a serious talk. And then I approached him in a way that I had never done before. And I just, you know, with like, every bit of grace I can muster. I said, I'll fight with you every day for the rest of your life. You've got to fight with me and we've got to approach this together. And at that point he relented. I think he thought it was crazy, but he agreed to go to Mexico. I don't think he thought it would work. I don't think either one of us thought it would work, but it was like, we've got to try one more thing. So that was your idea for him to go to Mexico and do the psychedelic treatment. Yes. Amazing. That's an incredibly beautiful story. Yeah, I almost like I don't brought to mind. Feel very fortunate, which I'm sure you do. That's yeah. incredible. Um, what what were both your opinions and knowledge of psychedelics at the time? Did you see them as counterculture, recreational drugs used predominantly in the '60s, or did you know there was medical 100%. aspects? No, I didn't 100%. even know they were psychedelics. I just knew that one someone that we knew and trusted said do this treatment and whatever it was i didn't really even care yeah i can imagine growing up in a religious midwestern family probably didn't talk about psychedelics much <laughs> <the day. laughs> no can you tell us about the first treatment did you guys do it together or was it just marcus alone or what, what kind of what did that look like well i'll talk about it so amber you know uh, amber amber's never done a psychedelic yeah um she's never never needed to um but yeah, I'm, I'm Chad. I, I was, I thought this was completely out of left field. I thought these were recreational drugs. You know, my parents did them in the sixties. I heard a story growing up that my dad dumped a hundred tabs of acid in a punch bowl at a wedding or a party and they couldn't find people for weeks. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. man. Okay. I told Rick Dalton that story. He goes, yeah, that's not good. I'm like, Oh no, I don't think it was good. Um, <laughs> at oh, all man. but um yeah i just thought they were recreational drugs you know like cocaine or you know you know other recreational drugs i didn't know that they were intended for medicinal use or that the plant medicines were literally used for thousands and thousands of years um way back as far as history can you know report uh for rites of passage for ailments for mental health um you know these medicines have been used forever and, you know, um, so I, I started reading and I started researching and it did make more sense because I did find, uh, I did find articles. I found articles in PubMed and nature and, and some of these, like, you know, these journals that, uh, put out, you know, real, real, uh, real research. And so it started to make more sense. And so I said, yeah, I mean, what the heck, if, 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 these, if people, if individuals get better from doing these, I'm like, why not? Um, but I still thought it was crazy. I still thought, how, how do you take a drug, psychedelic drug that I still thought was recreational to get better? Um, but you know, when you wrap the, you know, the preparation and then you wrap, you know, therapy and, and integration around it, like it's very real and, and extremely healing. And I think more powerful and healing than anything right now that's, that's being offered to us. 
but we do have to take, you know, caution. And so um, I went to a retreat that provided Ibogaine therapy and 5-MeO-DMT. And I just, I want to say something about Ibogaine and, and you know, we're going to do a better job at this, but, you know, Ibogaine is one of those psychedelics that's not considered a true psychedelic, not a true tryptamine, but it, it, um, it has a potential uh, cardiac risk. And so individuals need to it, 100% need to if, if anyone's ever thinking about doing ibogaine it needs to be done um very cautiously uh with a medical team you need to be screened properly you need to do an ekg you need to be hooked up to a heart monitor the whole time you need to do blood work you need to do urinalysis like everything has to be perfect before you go do an ibogaine treatment um there have been reported deaths in the past most of those deaths of course were underground usage not knowing where the actual drug was being processed from um, individuals lying or not being screened properly. Um, so there's a way to do it safe, very safely. Uh, and then there's also a way to do it haphazardously. And so, you know, the one thing I want to really emphasize is that, um, right now there's a psychedelic renaissance because these, these drugs are very powerful and they are truly healing and life-saving. Uh, but we don't want to derail what's happening. We don't want another Timothy Leary moment. We have to make sure that these get, um, I guess um, the whole, it, it, they just get uh, rolled out properly. And so I, I do want to say that because I know a lot of people listen yeah. to these and think, well, oh shit, I just want to go find Ibogaine. And it's not for everybody, I promise you. Um, well, it's but, you not know, a pleasant experience, right? <laughs> yeah, it's terrible. And that's why, that's the other thing. Um, you know, I got introduced to psychedelics, like Ibogaine was my psychedelic that I got introduced to. And that was, uh, it is not a, a fun journey. It's, um, it's a very internal journey. So it's not like, uh, the, like your, your, your classic psychedelics, like LSD or psilocybin or DMT, which are considered tryptamines where, you know, things can like shift and change and, um, you know, very visual, uh, this, um, when you, you, you actually take it, uh, and you're, you're in a, bed and you have eye shades on and, and music on if you take your eye shades off you're kind of out of the journey now you may you're you're still like you're you're very deep into the experience and you know things are blurry but there's no um you know there's no dancing rabbit you know what i mean there's no like visuals it's it's an internal experience it's like it's it's a revisit of your life and so when you put the eye shades on you're literally going through like a movie like you're watching your life in this like slow kind of pictured film and uh you you watch i mean everybody has a different experience so you watch things as a child you watch things when you're a teenager you know in college and then what it really is good at is uh, it, it zeroes in on the things that you're thinking about that you're struggling with or you know that you need to fix um you really can't hide from the medicine and so if uh if you're dealing with um, you know, abuse as a child or, uh, traumas, you know, in the military, you're going to go back and revisit those like a movie. You're going to watch it. And sometimes you may watch it in first person and deal with it again, or you may watch it from above and like watch the scene play out. But as you know, when you deal with something like that, like you literally deal with it, accept it, you know, grieve or accept that, you know, you didn't cause this incident to happen if you could deal with that, it's like lifting, you know, you basically are, you're, you're solving that problem. You're doing what talk therapy takes 10 years to do in a night. 
And so, you know, after my, I guess, eight, eight to 12 hour experience, I slept <clears throat> and Amber saw me the next day. It was literally, I felt like when I woke up, every weight was lifted out of a backpack that I was carrying for many years. Like it was like a struggle. And all of a sudden I like just dumped the pack and I just felt light and free and like had purpose again. And I just wanted to like do stuff and see Amber and hug her and see the kids and hug them. And, you know, here's the great thing. The drugs out of your system in less than 24 hours, it's gone. So it's got a half-life of seven hours. So, you know, in two days when you're still feeling good, has nothing to do with the drug. It has to do with whatever the drug just did to your brain, right? And so, you know, individuals are seeing results 30 days, 60 days, six months. Um, so it's really powerful. And uh, yeah, it was just a life-changing, definitely, I mean, life-changing experience. I'll never forget, um, I'll never forget Ibogaine. I'll never forget 5-MEO. Um, they, you know, you, 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 you experience stuff that um, that you just most people can't experience unless you're, you know, you're a monk um, or you have, you know, your faith is so strong that you actually are getting kind of downloaded uh, information, which you know many people get. Um, but you know that's that's what the psychedelic does. I've heard it described to me a lot by people like yourself, whether it was ex-military or some sort of traumatic brain injury, but just allows you to face trauma without prejudice or judgment. And so I think I've heard you describe it as like snow. You're able to build your own tracks versus the mm -hmm. tracks that your life is currently taking you on. So you can still get into poor habits and bad decision-making, et cetera, but it's somewhat of a reset. Right. It's the complete reset. That's exactly what it is. Chad. It's, it's a reset. And so, you know, if you have these loops, these, uh, these loops in your mind that you keep, you know, whether it's bad habits or whether it's bad, you know, self-talk, hmm. the psychedelic allows you to reset that it stops, um, your ego, it quiets the ego, it quiets a part of the brain called the default mode, which is like, I guess is your ego. I hope I have that right. But, um, when it, stops the chatter it's like build it's like a, a, a fresh snowfall with there's there's no tracks there right so now you come out of your experience you're like wow i'm going to go build in new habits i'm going to have now better um you know better self-talk and so all those negative uh you know reruns of you know i'm no good um you know wh why should i be here i want to kill myself um, I'm worthless, like the psychedelics stop that chatter and then allows you to kind of reinvent the, the chatter into good thoughts and good, good habits. I think that like the most important turning point is not even necessarily the drug, but moreover, like the judgment that you might've had at first, or like, I think that the stigma that so many people have about the drug, um, or the drugs in the first place or the medicine in the first place and shifting that perspective more into curiosity, um, so that you could go on that journey like at all. Right. And I think that so many people hold like these different judgments about things that they've never even tried. And so the fact that you guys were able to kind of shift that and find a treatment that actually worked is, is really incredible. I think that is something that almost every person could work on is shifting out of judgment and more into curiosity about 
a variety of different things, but do you feel like after that you tried to like shift judgment for like other people that you, you know, knew were going through a similar thing? Did you try to like sit, talk them into it? Absolutely. Absolutely. The one thing I got rid of uh, on my journey was judgment. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when you're talking about it is uh, I, I realized that I was judging, like you judge everybody. And then I'm like, like, how are you better than that person? You know, right. like, how can you even judge? I mean, you've made every mistake in the book. And so now it's just like Amber talks about grace. Um, you know, I just stopped judging her. I stopped judging the kids. I stopped judging people for what they wanted to do. If they wanted to go do something that I didn't agree with, like do it, you know, like I'm, I'm not going to judge you. I may not do it or want to do it, but it's not, I'm not going to not like you because of that. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think, you know, I mean, maybe psychedelics can make the world a better place. I don't know. I don't want to sound like a hippie, but, um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's really, um, it's really amazing to see the individuals who come out of these treatments again, and it could be anything. I think, I think all psychedelics are doing very similar things because you're hearing the same stories from psilocybin, from DMT and, and Ibogaine and, and others and MDMA, um, stories are very similar. They're the same, you know, they go in there, they're angry, they're depressed they're isolated. They're struggling. They come out like reset, fresh, happy, empathetic, wanting to help people. Um, it's a good thing. So you have this amazing experience and this light bulb moment, if you will, but like to <clears> your <throat> point, and as we well know, even today, it's gotten a lot better. I think we can all agree with that, but it's still stigmatized were you communicating this to your family, friends, other team members when you got back? Uh, or is there still a little element of, I don't want to call it shame, but just, you know, it is what it is. People saw it for a certain thing and people are now seeing it as medicine. Yeah. Um, I think, I think this is going to be a few years in the process, except I think we're going pretty quickly that um, these medicines are being destigmatized. And it's part of my job really as the, yeah you know, chair of, of vets, I, I tell stories, I interview, I do podcasts, I try to destigmatize not only just raising your hand for help, but that these medicines are when you use them for their intended use are, are really powerful and really life-changing. And so, you know, we educate senators and congressional leaders and, and that's our, you know, it's part of our mission now. Um, you know, and, and there's still people that'll be out there call, call us crazy, but there's only so many times that you can call someone crazy, but when you hear the same story over and over and over again from hundreds and thousands of people, like there's something there, right? Like, I don't, is everybody crazy or is everybody healing and getting better? Right. Um, so that's the, that's the cool part. Where does, where do things stand today as far as decriminalization, legal status, uh, capital allocation, like I, yeah. I'm invested in a publicly traded company called the Thai life sciences. And I'm sure you're aware of that funds, this type of research. So it seems more accessible and more understood than it ever has been, which is great, but just update us on, you know, maybe some of the key wins over the past, whatever it is, year or so. Yeah. Um, well, this bullet train is moving pretty quickly. <laughs> um, there's definitely been billions of dollars that have been invested in startups and nonprofits, uh, drug development, mainly. MDMA and psilocybin both received FDA breakthrough status uh, before 2020. So I think like 2018, 19, meaning that they have a medical benefit. Um, MAPS is bringing uh, MDMA through phase three trials. 
as soon as they get through phase three trials, it'll be federally legalized. And then psilocybin's right after that. Um, and we're talking about two drugs that are like little risk. I mean, there's almost, some people say psilocybin is one of the safest things you can put in your body. <laughs> I mean, it's good for you. I'm sure, you know, Carcillo probably said that. I mean, it's, yeah. I mean, these, these things are good for your brain, not, not bad for your brain. Like we were taught, um, you know, MDMA also really the risk to MDMA there's, uh, you know, dehydration. And so yeah. like, you know, don't, don't do it at a rave and like dance for 10 hours, not drink water, you know, like it's, um, but so these will be federally legalized within the next three years, um, for medicinal use, you know, I, psychiatrists will, will prescribe, uh, at the state level, Oregon, uh, I think within a year will roll out their state, uh, psilocybin program, which will be, um, uh, they will, you'll have to do, you'll have to do the treatment at a medical run establishment with medical staff. And so they're just trying to like work through a lot of the challenges, as you can imagine, like manufacturing and licensing and permitting and, and, and everything there. And then, uh, Colorado might be next that is a ballot measure right now. I'm not sure if it's going to get through or not. Um, but you know, at, as, at vets, as an organization that, you know, we have to, um, we provide funding for individuals to go outside the U S to do these legally and then to protect, you know, the donor base and then individuals that are part of the company. Like we can't fund, like we don't fund underground treatments. Of course. Um, we're, we're still going to, we're, we're, we, we have to get some more legal counsel about if we're going to be able to fund any of the stuff going on in Oregon, because it still won't be federally legal at that time. It'll just be state legal. Um, so we have to find out some information about that, even though that's a very easy, you know, easy win for individuals looking for access here in the U S as long as it's legal. But again, because it's not federally legal when it goes live, there may be an issue there for, for vets. Um, and then, you know, we're doing some research, um, Stanford and, and some other, uh, academic institutions. And then, you know, on the policy front, as I mentioned, Amber and I spent some time on Capitol Hill trying to, you know, talk to lawmakers, educate, um, and really right now we're just trying to get them to release federal funding for research. So we're not telling them, Hey, like, let's just sprinkle this in the water. Like, Hey, like, Hey, we know these work. The, 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 the anecdotal evidence is out there. There is already a lot of real research out there in clinical trials also that are all positive. Um, let's just, re let, let's, let's release federal dollars to start researching these here, right here in the U S let's reschedule them. They are schedule one right now, which means they have no medical benefit and they're highly addictive, which is complete bullshit. They have tons of medical benefit and they are not addictive. They're, they're being used as anti-addictive drugs for other highly addictive drugs like cocaine and crystal meth and um, opioids, heroin. you know, heroin. Um, so, you know, again, it takes time to educate. And, and then, you know, just because you tell somebody something, they have to go do their own research. Um, so it's, it's happening. Um, and it's, it's fun to be a part of, and, um, we'll just, you know, I don't think we should sprint. I think we should just, we should just go, you know, do it correctly. Amber, can you tell us a little bit about like the journey of you guys starting vets and also like, if you have them, what the efficacy rates, um, in your guys' foundation are? Yes. So the goal of starting vets was to assist our friends, the ultimate goal to end veteran suicide. It's certainly taken on a life of its own. Um, I think that we've really aimed for the stars here and 
you know, creating a sort of movement. And at this point, it's not just a movement in the veteran community or even in the United States. It really like spans the globe. We get contacted frequently by um, leaders, organizations, veterans internationally that are also looking for this sort of um, healing and and movement in their respective countries. So um, we found ourselves kind of in the middle of this most fantastic melee and um, I'm finding, you know, a lot of conviction and not quitting and doing the right thing and holding on to those values that I was raised uh, to believe. It's really, really coming in handy right now. It's been the most humbling blessing of our lives that we can take something that was rooted in so much uncertainty, you know, being parents at 20 and 23, so much um, sacrifice, just serving the country on Marcus's behalf and supporting him through that. And so much pain, which, you know, we, we had no idea that the hardest part of our lives would come on the other side of service. It's a time where, you know, our, our military members should be really looking forward to the second half of their lives and really be able to live and thrive, not just survive. We were not prepared for that. And there was no one with us on this new battlefield. It was very scary. And so just being able to be sort of a conduit to alleviate that kind of suffering for, for veteran families that have already given so much is pretty surreal and a, a, an incredibly great honor. Um, for guys and gals like Marcus, who were the prime fighting age on 9-11, you know, we've, we've got friends who have spent their entire adult lives going to war. And I don't think that this country has a very good plan in dealing with the fallout from that on any level. So we're just really compelled by this new idea. Um, the efficacy rates, like in our, we just did an internal survey for grant recipients in our program and our efficacy rates are hovering above 94%. So, and then on the question, would you recommend the vets program for friends or, or former or other veterans? It was a hundred percent answered. Yes. So I think that it's an exciting time. And if someone is fighting this new battle alone, then they might not be, you know, they might have to wait just a tiny bit, whether it's to get into a retreat internationally or for laws to change in the United States, but there is hope on the horizon. And I think that that's giving a lot of individuals and a lot of families uh, uh, the, the will to hang on. Yeah. A lot of hope, a lot of hope. I mean, what you said yeah. about, you know, like the sacrifice that you guys made and not necessarily recognizing that it would be a struggle on the back end, like that part gave me chills. So I hope that anyone who's listening, who is struggling can, or know someone who is can find your guys's organization and and move you know get get some help and relief there so what you guys do is incredible thank you yeah. thank you so much which countries are the most progressive these days and where are uh the predominant treatment facilities that you're sending uh your uh, uh your grant donors or recipients um 
Yeah. Um, many are going to Mexico. A lot of these uh, medicines are legal, unregulated, uh, and they've been operating there for, like I said, many years. Costa Rica is another spot um, that is pretty liberal on their um, medicinal use of these drugs. A um, few places in South America um, and then a few places in Europe. But there's not many, you know, in, in Canada has some laws that are really loosening up there, like uh, end of life or right to try. So, uh, and it's happening here uh, too. I think, um, you know, I think these laws are, are they're going to, we're going to see them change rather quickly. Again, we're talking about, we're talking about medicine that's healing people. And so if they can't get around that, there's something really wrong with our country and our lawmakers. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> what's uh, what's next for the foundation? I'm guessing that you want to fund as many soldiers and, and other individuals struggling as, as humanly possible. I'm sure that's at the top of the list. And I'd love to understand how many you're actually doing on an annual basis. But, you know, what's next uh, outside of some of the legal battles? What we've learned is that there is no end to the number of veterans that are interested and need help. I think that anytime you pair a therapy that is so efficacious with a need that is so great and a trust that runs so deep in the veteran community, word is spreading like wildfire. And so one of the things that's really near and dear to us is to educate people on the benefits of psychedelics and advocate for policy change in the United States while also letting others who are interested know that like these therapies are very powerful and they can actually potentially be detrimental if you're going about them unsupported. So the prep and the integration before and after a psychedelic journey is some psychedelic integration specialists would say that's 90% of the healing. And if anyone's going into this sort of healing unsupported, it could actually be very confusing or traumatizing in and of itself. So um, we're really advocating for policy change because we're certainly hitting a ceiling on how many veterans we can help. We had budgeted for 150 this year. We're going to end the year somewhere between 225 and 250. And that's like, it's, it's a lot of work to fundraise, to continually meet this demand. Um, at the end of the day, it's like pennies to actually give someone their life back. But we really aren't going to start to move the needle on this until the therapies are available in the United States. And I feel like for it's time that our government looks at something different. The last invention for mental health was the, was the invention of the SSRI 35 or so years ago. It works for some people. It doesn't work for a lot of people. So I think that at minimum right now, we're advocating for more research and more federal dollars to back up the research so that organizations like ours don't have to continually like, you know, meet this demand that is ever growing. I'm curious for both of you guys um, to remain in a good grounded place where you feel like you're thriving um, at this point, what are some of the routines and rituals that you have as a part of your daily life? Like what supplements might you take? What things might you do? Do you meditate? Um, give us some tips on what our listeners can do to make them feel their best. We provide the, the supplemental support before and after the journey, uh, realizing that there are key lifestyle shifts that, um, 
need to be made in order to maintain the progress. Most of our grant recipients start a meditation practice and that has been a real game changer for Marcus. He meditates twice a day. Um, I feel like we all have our own puzzle pieces and you know our puzzles all look different. So what puzzle pieces work for me don't work for Marcus and vice versa. Um, I found my puzzle pieces, he's found his. And if our life starts to feel a little sideways, it's generally because we're not putting one of the pieces in the puzzle. So for him, he has to wake up early. He has to meditate. He has to work out. Um, he has to be in the water. You know, he's, he's a huge beach guy and we have to eat right. He has to take supplements and he commits to doing these things every single day. So that's really what's helped him maintain his progress. And I feel like what I've witnessed at beds is, you know, you, you can give someone the tools, but they have to want to take them and they have to, to use them. And so I feel like our grant recipients are getting out of it what they put into it. And the more they do, uh, the more benefit they feel, the more they're encouraged to add to their their puzzle. Yeah, you know, I think meditation has been the number one tool. Uh, I've never experienced anything like it. Um, when I feel like I'm slipping or Amber and I are, you know, running too hard, um, you know, if I just go and meditate for 30 minutes or longer, it, it completely resets me. It almost brings me back to, you know, not, not a full psychedelic experience, but it, it clears my mind. Um, I can be, you know, off somewhere else and it kind of, um, you know, it, it like filters out all the garbage that's like in your mind and, and racing all day long, or maybe weeks on end. Uh, I think meditation is one of the best things that anybody can ever do. It is not, it is, is, uh, I say it's underrated. Um, I think we need to, you know, as a, as a Western society, learn a lot more about meditation and actually, um, commit ourselves to do it because right now we, you know, we run so hard, we're constantly getting dinged on our phones all day. Um, everybody, you know, wants a piece of you. Um, we try to fill up our calendars. Like it just not, it, it, we're not tuned for that. Like we, we still haven't evolved. Um, and so meditation for me has been a life, life saver. Uh, it's, uh, it's, and it's also a life changer. I, I love it. It's, it keeps me grounded. Um, makes me, you know, it helps me focus. Uh, it helps me respond to questions, uh, in a thoughtful manner and not just say the first thing that's on my mind. I mean, it's, it just, it, there's so many, um, and it's gonna, it's gonna, you know, increase your lifespan, right. Because it's, it's also, you know, bring your anxiety down and, um, we're under so much stress, it reduces stress. And so that's, you know, that's good for us. And so, um, I'd say meditation is number one. And, you know, the research has also just come out that getting uh, blood flow and oxygen in your brain is like the best antidepressant. So, you know, get on a treadmill for 20, 30 minutes or try to, you know, beat your wife on, on the, on the Peloton and you yeah. got a full spectrum sauna, which is awesome. For, for me, one of the things that I came to realize is that we live in a very external world where, you know, we're always looking at other people, like, well, what can you do for me? Or what can you, you know, look at doctors, like help me with my problem or therapists help me with my problem. I think that one of the biggest lessons Marcus, Marcus and I have both learned is that your best healer is in you. Yes. And so whatever that looks like, like reconnecting with self is the essence of 
this entire journey and it has no end you know finish line it's like marcus is on his journey i'm on my journey he's learning to connect with himself i've i'm learning to connect with myself and then we can better connect with one another what you said at the end is the most powerful thing that may have been said like the entire podcast is like so many of us run around so disconnected from ourselves um because of all of whether it's social media or you know, all of the different things that we're looking outside of ourselves for, like you said, doctors, like there are so many different things. And if we looked inside, it, it would just, I think that for so many people, life would be so changing. And for me, that's what meditation really allowed me to do. And so I love that you guys um, talked about that. Cause I think that it's such a powerful, powerful tool. And for the people who say that they don't have time for it, it's like th those are the people that need it the most. <laughs> those are the people that need I it mean, we run a wellness podcast and I would say, honestly, it's probably the number one most common denominator we find with all of our successful guests. people and yeah, yeah. our guests. For Outside sure. of Dana, he said he's not there yet. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. But it's just right. Every, so hey, quickly. He's doing something right, so he keeps going. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, but it's just so quickly being understood as as something that just benefits everyone and is just a must in today's society, especially American societies. So. And one thing that you guys said too, is, or you know, both of you guys, like if for you, if if you are in that place where you're meditating or you're both meditating, I found that for Chad and I as well. Like if we're both doing that, we are more connected. Like we are better as a team if we're both taking time to be mindful about the way that we are acting interacting with ourselves and then interacting with each other so 100 percent. and i think too like from a couple's perspective marks and i have had to learn how to appreciate that you don't have to be exactly alike you know there we can celebrate the differences like what gets him grounded when he's doing his quiet meditation i'm like tearing it up on the peloton we're just wired differently you know yeah. and, and what i need is different than what he needs and like that's okay oh so. yeah we're very different we we, <laughs> we meditate in very different ways yeah so wim hof breath work and i'm doing a joe dispenza guided meditation yeah, so. for the <laughs> whatever so. floats nice you know yeah he's got a, he's got another event down in miami uh or in florida i think it's the second week of december i know there's I a know. few yeah a few individuals from vets are going down there uh, which is really cool it is like, I saw him speak live, um, in Arizona at an event I was at a couple of weeks ago and I was looking into one of the retreats cause I saw that one in my, yeah. It's like, I'm so looking forward to eventually doing one of those. I'm trying to convince Chad to go with me to do a week long. Joe he's, he's great. We, he's great. We, um, we sponsored his, uh, recent event in Denver and, uh, some individuals that I really uh, like look up to guys that I've worked with said markets that that was like phenomenal. And yeah. so the fact that they said that I I'm, I'm all in, uh, you know, when I can take a break. Yeah. This sure. book is in position a in my audio book, never ending audio book, uh, stack. Well, we know you both are extremely busy. Um, thank you so much for taking the time and, and even more so thank you so much for doing such amazing and beautiful work. It yes. is truly inspirational yes uh, to say the least thank you thank you thank, yeah, you. thank you please let us know if you want to come to the gala we would love to i would love to meet you in person i know marcus would love to see you 
hundred percent. Um, where can everyone find you guys online? Yeah. Where can anyone donate to your amazing cause? Give us all the details. Vetsolutions.org is our website. We're on social media um, as well. Everything can be accessed through our website and uh, donations can be made through there as well. Okay, amazing. Thank you both. Thank you so much. Thank you guys so much. We really hope that you enjoyed that episode. You can follow me on Instagram at Wellness by Kelly. And if you're new around here, you can sign up for the WBK seven day free trial where you can get access to all of my low impact workouts, blood sugar balancing, plant-based recipes, and guided meditations all available on wellnessbykelly.com and on the WBK app. Hey, thanks for listening. Please make sure you rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. You can also connect with us on social media at Wellness by Kelly. Drop us a DM for who you want to hear from.